So today's reading is Mark 2, 23, 3 through 6. I said that wrong. <laughs> you guys can figure it out. It can be found on page 924 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as up on the screen. This is God's word. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The word of the Lord. I get the honor once again this week to uh, introduce our... Let's fix this again. There we go to introduce our guest speaker. It's uh, Dan Nelson. Uh, You heard him a couple weeks ago. You'll hear him again. Uh, Dan and I have been, and and Jonathan, been through this interesting journey of going through the preaching collective. So literally we're learning from Mark how to preach. Uh, Pastor Mark has been an incredible mentor for us and uh, a great source of inspiration, guidance, and uh, we appreciate his lessons deeply. And uh, I also have had the privilege to journey with Dan through an internship. We're pastoral interns here at City Life, and uh, he's doing a killer job. And uh, it's, been a, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to walk beside him and uh, experience learning ministry with him. Uh, I do want to lift up Dan and just say he has this incredible sensitivity for communicating scripture and communicating scripture clearly. And it's something that I'm really impressed by and has been something that's actually shaped me in our relationship. So I'm in our, in our relationship, he's actually helped, I think, all of us uh, in the preaching collective become better speakers. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to what he's going to bring today. And I know it comes through what he's going to bring uh, has been... Uh, Wrote through a lot of hard work and uh, a lot of prayers. So let's welcome Dan. Thanks. Well, that's a lot to live up to. Um, hopefully, I don't uh, muck this up too much. 
Um, cool, well, pray with me. God, we approach this time together with a deep longing and pull towards your love. Often, we hear echoes of a voice calling towards something just around the corner. We tire as we search. As we journey towards this echo, we pray that you move towards us. Amen. So a few summers ago, I was a, a camp counselor in Wairika, California, which is extreme northern California. It's probably the, f- the last city that you'll get to before you go to Oregon, or it's the first city you get to if you're going to California. Um, I was a camp counselor, and I was fortunate enough to be able to, to raft on the Klamath River, which I don't know if you have experienced the Klamath River, but it's probably one of the most beautiful rivers I've ever seen in my entire life which is difficult for us because we live near a river. A river cuts right through um, our city. And so it's hard to, to compare the American River with the Klamath River. But let me just tell you that it's infinitely better. At least our, our section, our portion of it. Um, everything's beautiful about this river. The, the trees, the, the bushes, the rocks, and the rapids. And the reason why I say the rapids are beautiful is because I had a chance throughout the summer to raft on this river. We would go a stretch um, that we would do would be about 18 miles, and we would cut that in half to about nine miles one day or nine miles the next day, or if we're really lucky, we would do all 18 miles, which is about as exhausting as it sounds. Um, And the unique thing about about rivers is that they always kind of have this same type of flow to them, which isn't a fun joke because they flow, but they have different sections that are named different things. And usually they're crazy, edgy names like Rattlesnake or Devil's Backbone or Beelzebub's Gallbladder. Um, but it's always funny because there's always this word that's Devil This or Devil That or something crazy like Cougar's Paw or something. And it doesn't really represent, like, how the heck do they get Rattlesnake out of, out of this? Um, it happens with, with every single river. Our river is no exception, but the Klamath has its own unique names. Um, there was one time, however, and being a camp counselor, you have certain rights and privileges where you can do things that other camp counselors doesn't, and I, or other, um, other campers aren't able to do, and I took full advantage of that. So I went to our, red, our head river guide, and I asked him if, I was like, I'm kind of tired of doing rafting, which, I mean, how are you tired of doing ra- tough life, right? Um, so I asked him, is there any chance that I can use the inflatable kayak? So we have this kayak that's probably about seven feet long, and it is inflatable. That's why it's called inflatable kayak. And the, the unique thing about a raft compared to a kayak is that you aren't just sitting on top of the water. You are in the water. And so you feel every, every movement, every tossle, every jerk, every turn. You feel the rapids and the rocks, and it is amazing. But it's also the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I know that um, this might surprise you, but I'm not a um, strong type of person. I don't know if that, if that, come, that comes across, that I don't have very much upper body strength. I know, I know, it's all right. There's some tissues in the back if I just ruined, if the gods have fallen for you. But there's two things that I had two feelings while I was kayaking on the river. One feeling was fear because I was afraid I was going to lose my glasses because they were the only pair that I had for the entire summer and they were going to get tossed into the water. So I had the, the dorky dad thing with the, the cord that went all the way across and they actually helped. So I'm convinced that I will be a dorky dad. 
And the second thing is that there was a deep and real connection that was intrinsically different from the raft to the kayak. That while I was in the river, I could feel everything. I was deeply connected. And the only time that that was different was when I fell out of the kayak and then there was a larger sense of fear because I was afraid that I was going to just drown and die if I didn't find the kayak, which never happened, obviously. Um, so there's, there's this deep sense of spiritual connection, and it's an, it's an experience that will always draw me back to the Klamath River. And that experience goes deeper than just being in the river. It goes, um, it's a part of a connection I had with my campers. It was a part of being somewhere new, somewhere different, being a part of God's creation. So it's easy for me to think of the Klamath in terms of spirituality. And I'm sure that you have your own feelings and moments and experiences where you felt deeply connected with something and that that is your experience. And no matter how hard you try to talk about it, you just don't have enough words to describe it. That you have felt something so deep that you have chills when you think about it. There's another time, and I won't go too much into a story about this, but um, I went to a Coldplay concert a couple years ago, um, and it was at the, the amphitheater in outside Yuba City or Marysville. I try and forget that those exist. No offense if you're from Yuba City or Marysville. Um, but I remember having the same type of deep experience at this Coldplay concert. And it might have been because it was, I was fun, I was with my friends. It might have been because the giant yellow balloons filled with confetti that they shoot out. I have no idea where they come from. Or it might be because they had these paper butterflies that they shot out just at the right time, and they looked like they were flying as they floated down to the, the bottom. It also might be because other people were smoking pot, but I'm not going to condone that and say that that was a connection or a, a, a launching off point to experience that music. But we all have those moments where we experience those things, right? I'm sure that you're thinking about something that you have experienced, that, that, that connects you to something larger than yourself. Um, but I want to take this image of this river, and I want to expand it beyond my own experience, and I want to apply an image for the rest of this message. And I want us to think about this river that has its, its source and its movement, its rapids, and its life that surrounds it. I want you to think that this river is filled with fresh, clean water that when you look at the river, you can see the bottom of the riverbed. That you can see the fish swimming in the eddies and the pools. That you see the life flowing wherever it flows. That if you take a drink of this river, you won't get sick. Your thirst will be quenched. I want you to, to hold on to that image. I want you to think about that wherever the water flows, life is going to be there from the source of its lake to its, to its waterfalls to its outlet in the sea. And that this river exists and that it is there. But there's a story that goes on in this river. It just doesn't flow and flow and flow forever. That at one point, there was a group of people or an individual or an institution that took this river and saw that people were connecting with it. And they decided to reservoir it, to use it for larger purposes. They decided to lay pipe down and funnel this river to a city, and they laid concrete over this river, 
And all of a sudden, this river that at one point anyone could connect to is now hijacked and used for a larger, greater purpose. And the access to this river, to this river is limited, rational, timed, and efficient. That there's only a certain amount of time that you can access this water, and only a certain amount of time that this water can quench your thirst. Eventually, with enough pressure, water will boil through or bubble through the, the underground concrete, and, there will, and water will shoot up from cracks in the concrete, and eventually we can, be, we can quench our thirst again without being told what to do. This passage is about water breaking through the surface of that concrete. It's about a shift from one institution or one group of people controlling how we access this water to anyone being able to access this water. And there's three points that are going to go with this because I said a couple weeks ago, any good sermon has three points. Um, and so the three points I will cover over this, this message is going to be our religion, your spirituality, and his gospel. Um, and so let's start. So we enter into this passage with the, the Pharisees. They are spying on Jesus, but it's not like a weird spying, like they're not kind of peeking through the bushes. Um, they're spying on Jesus because Jesus is doing something that's threatening them, and not threatening them individually, threatening them as a whole. This passage um, is about the hijack and control. This group, the Pharisees, are keepers of tradition and culture. They are self-appointed guardians to protect God's people during time of occupation. That they want to protect God's story. They want to protect God's story and what he's doing with their people. Their intentions are good. Their intentions are beautiful. And they think their intentions are pure. But often what happens with, um, with religion specifically, or with institutions like this, is that the purity in protecting that culture is compromised by adding more rules. Because we have to add more rules to protect this culture. Because in order to protect it, we have to build up boundaries and barriers. We have to lay concrete. We have to pipe the access to this story. So if you look in your worship guides, there's a brilliant quote by G.K. Chesterton where he says, if men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they shall be governed by tens of thousands of commandments. And the idea is simple, that the Pharisees' intentions were to keep God's people on the right path. For many groups, it wasn't enough to be a loyal Jew, but one had to be a better and more loyal Jew. And in this no-win situation, the point of the commandments, the celebration of God's creation and redemption, past, present, and future, had been lost. The rule mattered more than the reality. So we have to unpack that a little bit because this is very insider language, right? That came from um, N.T. Wright, which is a very insider person. So he's using language that we may or may not necessarily understand. So the observant, the, the observance, the rule that he's talking about is the Sabbath, this day that was created that connects all the way back to the creation of the world, that connects to the Ten Commandments and... Um, the creation of a national identity, the very thing that God pressed upon his people when they weren't following him is that this is about creation. It's about redemption. That the Sabbath is about something bigger 
than just ourselves. And we have this weird connotation with the Sabbath, especially if you've been um, in the Christian church, in the church for a long time, because we have this connotation. And if you haven't been, you might have looked at the Sabbath from the outside and said, what the heck is that? Is that a bunch of Orthodox Jews with long curly hair that walk to synagogue? So we have connotations with this. The Sabbath is about creation. It's about redemption. It's about what God has done in the past. It's about what he's doing in the, in the present and about what he's going to do in the future. And in order to protect this story, the Pharisees wanted to protect the Sabbath. And so they added rules on not working on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field and his disciples are pulling grain because they're hungry and their approach to Jesus is less about this day of, um, of not doing work and is more about protecting their tradition. But it's kind of a good feeling that we have when Jesus bites his thumb at the religious people because we all have that experience, right, where some institution or some religion or some church or some political party has created rules that are pure sometimes or seem pure but instead are stifling. And the freedom that that message, that message offers doesn't seem free anymore. And so we connect with Jesus on this biting, on biting his thumb at the religious people because that's what we yearn for. This passage asks a question that relates to the, the passages before this moment. And Mark is asking the question, why? Why is this happening? Who is Jesus? What is Jesus doing? And he's asking, why is Jesus doing it this way? Why is Jesus being baptized? Why is Jesus calling new disciples? Why is he exercising demons? Why is he healing the lepers and the paralytic? The first few chapters in Mark are all action. Things are happening. And this is the first moment where we actually see Jesus providing a statement of why he's doing these things. And that the why is that Jesus is offering a new way to live. That these rules that have been created are just rules. They don't offer freedom. Perhaps you've experienced the, the raw force of authority telling you when to worship, how to worship, what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. Jesus is providing a game changer. That these rules are not what's supposed to be. But if you have experienced those things, the, the stifleness of religion, people telling you what to do or what not to do, people telling you how to dress depending on your tradition, maybe even telling you not to play cards, not to um, go to movies. If you have experienced that, I want to lift those feelings up. I want to lift those feelings of longing for something else. And we list those things up. And we seek resolution. We seek grace for those who hurt us. And we seek love and forgiveness if you've been hurt. Jesus is offering a new way to live. And so the, the piped water that has been laid over with concrete, those pipes are breaking. Springs are rising from the ground. The river is yearning to move, is yearning for fresh oxygen. And so we move to the second point of your spirituality. There's this pendulum that we're experiencing in our culture. 
at one point, we experience our religion, where we, we experience God together. And you have things like different institutions, different economic theories, different political theories, where we experience this tradition together. And the pendulum is, is shifting in our own culture from our religion to your spirituality, where we've been so stifled, we've been so thirsty for something, that now that the water is out, we drink whatever we can. The other quote in the, the worship guide is from N.T. Wright, and is from a, his book, Simply Christian, which much of this sermon has come from a specific passage. I'll go as far as to say almost everything is stolen from that chapter. So we say, others have been aware of an undefinable thirst. The official guardians of water system have been horrified to see the eruption of spirituality in recent years. In many parts of the world, the attempt to pave everything with concrete hasn't taken hold. Africa, Asia, South America, if there is a God who we can know in Jesus, this upsurge of spirituality is what we would expect. So is the guiding exper- unguided experimentation. People starved for water will drink anything, even if it's polluted. So we have this yearning. At times, this yearning has been controlled, rationalized, force-fed to us with timing and efficiency. And now we experience this unbridled spirituality. Perhaps, you, perhaps you're a type of person that says, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. I know I said it because it's easier for me to say it because I have my own baggage with religion or with authority or with people telling me how to worship, what to think, and what to do. It doesn't take much for us to describe political, religious, or economics institutions that have failed to adequately express our need for this spirituality or a need for connection. The pendulum has swung. The pipes have broken and Water is splashed and splattered in every direction, and those who are thirsty seek for water, no matter how polluted it is. The best example that I have for this is, comes from, um, there's a, a group of, um, of American literature that it's, it's American pilgrimage literature of people just going out and searching for themselves. I've used that language um, to describe my spirituality. Perhaps you have two that I just need to go find myself, that it took me so long to actually go to college because I needed to find myself. And this comes from um, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Perhaps you've, you've heard of him. He says, I believed in a good home, in sane and sound living, in good food, good times, work, faith, and hope. I've always believed in these things. It was with some amazement that I realized I was one of the few people in the world who believed in these things without going around making dull middle-class philosophy out of it. I was suddenly left with my hands, with nothing in my hands but a handful of crazy stars. Perhaps you've been in that same situation where the the middle-class philosophy has been inadequate to describe your need for spirituality. And it doesn't have to take, you don't have to go very far to find this in our culture. If you go to a bookstore, if there are many bookstores left, Um, and you can find a variety of self-help books or do-it-yourself spirituality, things that allow you to adjust your own vibration or to feel your vibration to see how you're connected with the world. If you take a trip to the bookstore, you might find personality types of books like Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP, or even spirituality type books like Enneagrams, I'm an individualist. 
regardless, the recent trend and reverse swing from the institution to the do-it-yourself spirituality is that we're searching for something. And I think that that something is larger than just this need for spirituality that we need to be spiritual people, but it's the fact that we are spiritual people and that we're looking for something, that there is something deep in this world and we're looking for answers to fulfill it. I think that human beings have been seriously damaged by evil and that what they need isn't better self-knowledge or better social conditions, but help, rescue from outside themselves. I know, I said evil, and that, has, that may have deep connotations with you. That may be one of the trigger words that you have where you've been hurt by an institution, where they've tried to justify evil. They may apply that it's just God's will to it, and that just doesn't seem adequate. Or maybe that they have used that to manipulate your feelings to feel a certain way or move you in a certain direction. Evil is a big word. But if you consider Jesus' central question in this passage, I think that you can see that what this, this longing for spirituality, the reason why we have this tension between religion and spirituality, is that there is something outside of ourselves that needs to be rescued. And we are a part of that outside that needs to be rescued. Jesus' central question in verse 4 is, is it legal to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Is it legal to make people alive or only to kill them? This deep, longing question resonates with us and is a reason why we search for this water, the reason why we want this thirst to be quenched. I submit to you that whether you move from religiosity to this vague individual spirituality, that the solution to this longing need um, is a result of a singular limitation. The central question of Jesus reveals to us that our problem, one of our problems, is that we don't see what is happening right in front of our nose. Jesus asked this question to the Pharisees because they are so locked in this, this mode of rules and authority, in this, in this mode of religiosity. And he's saying, do you not see what God is doing? Hello, I'm here. I'm healing these people. Something is happening. God's story is moving. Are you so locked in protecting your own nationalism that you can't see what God is doing? Our question of spirituality is not simply just whether we want to connect with something. It's what are we connecting to? What is moving us? Where are we moving? And who is moving us? The Pharisees, and even both sides of our own swinging pendulum of religiosity and spirituality, fails to see what God is doing right in front of us. Jesus asks, is it right to do on the Sabbath? Their silence and stubbornness leads Jesus to heal a man and, and forces the Pharisees to leave and to plot against them. But even then... They're so mad that they would resort to their natural enemies, the Herodians, to squelch Jesus' message. Oftentimes, we, when, we're, when we're forced with the abrupt revelation of God acting in this world, our response to it is to go in the very opposite direction. So I have a question. Who is Jesus really calling in this passage? 
Who is he really asking these questions to? I think that he's asking the question to both parties. We have the explicit idea of um, the, the Pharisees, Jesus responding to them, asking them if it's good to do on the Sabbath. Are your rules so, um, so stifled that you're willing to not do good, to not promote life? But I think he's also asking the man with the crippled hands, will you do good? Something is happening in this, in this passage that is beyond the Pharisees. And that's the gospel. The gospel isn't a replacement for our spirituality. If I say the gospel, that might promote more connotations of organized religion. But the gospel is not a replacement for our spirituality. No, our spirituality is a tuning fork for the need that the gospel satisfies. In the midst of, the ten- of this tension, Jesus calls out the man to he- and heals him. The rules that the Pharisees used to, to grapple and control are being reimagined and reframed for God's movement in the world. And the man being healed is evidence of that reframing and reimagining. The gospel invites us into God's story. We're seeking spirituality, something beyond ourselves. And the gospel can satisfy that spirituality. If you're on either side of the pendulum, searching for answers or a longing need, if, or if you are a man with the crippled hand, straining your ears to hear Jesus calling you out, the gospel will satisfy your spirituality. I know this is, this is cliche and just proves the um, where I come from and how people generally respond to, to this, and that is Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, another insider book. But there's a moment in Lord of the, Ring, in the Lord of the Rings which I think is probably the most beautiful gospel-revealing image. It's towards the end of the last book. Frodo hasn't tossed the ring into the volcano. They're right about to go to the, the big battle, the big confrontation at the gates of, of Mordor. I know, I'm really, I'm really nerding myself out. Um, but at the end of the book, there's three characters that fall into this darkness and into this abyss. And Aragon, the soon-to-be king, and I'm not that big of a Lord of the Rings fan, so I won't give you all, all the details, but he, there's three, three characters laying out on the ground, and, and the narrator talks about how they're falling into darkness. And so Aragon does this weird metaphysical spiritual act where he goes and talks to one character and he enters into their darkness, and he lifts them out of that darkness. And then he goes to another character, enters in their darkness, and lifts them out of their darkness. And then finally to the third, enters and lifts, and he brings them out of an abyss. And it's beautiful the way he plunges himself into their, their own abyss and their, their darkness. And when these characters wake up, they say, here I am my king. Jesus, wherever you are on the spectrum or continuum of religiosity or spirituality, is asking you, stand up. Come to me. Be healed. The gospel will heal you. Jesus wants to make you whole. Wherever you are, 
in that search. Jesus wants to heal you. And I know Tolkien is a little heavy for a, a Sunday morning, but I think the reality stays the same. That's, that the, the gospel wants to invite you, wants to lift you out of your darkness, and wants you to join God's story. Don't allow your spirituality to, or your religiosity to not see what God is doing right in front of your face. Be open to that. Pray with me. Jesus, we, we, thank you for, um, we thank you for the gospel, for the resurrection that, that shows us there is a new way to live. God, I pray that you continue to move us and guide us towards that new way. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you tenderize our souls, that you make us open to what, to what you are doing. Show us love and grace and peace throughout this week. In your name, amen.